Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, Cardio Nerds. It's Amit and Dan. Thanks for joining us as we tour fellowship programs across the country. As part of the Cardio Nerds Case Report Series, produced in collaboration with the American College of Cardiology Fellows and Training section, each episode will feature a cardiology fellowship program. Fellows from that program will present and teach about a fascinating case and share what makes their hearts flutter about their program. Each case discussion is followed by an eCPR segment from a content expert and a message from their program director. Before we dive in, just remember, we are an independent educational platform. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The case you're about to hear is 100% HIPAA compliant. We thank you for subscribing to and supporting the Cardio Nerds. Our mission is simple, to democratize cardiovascular education, promote diversity and inclusion, empower everyone to learn and teach from the basics to the advanced while fostering wellness and humanity. If you believe in the mission, consider supporting us on patreon.com forward slash cardio nerds. Every little bit goes a long way. We're also excited to grow the platform by mentoring the next generation of cardio nerds. We are establishing the Cardio Nerds Academy and are looking for residents and fellows to join as Cardio Nerds Fellows. Please see the link in the episode description to submit an application. And now, without further ado, let's continue on our tour with another fascinating case from amazing Cardio Nerds colleagues. Hello, Cardio Nerds. Welcome back. Amit and I are traveling to the amazing city of Philadelphia. We have some amazing fellows to talk about an incredible case. Guys, can you introduce yourselves? Yes. My name is Anika Vaidi. I'm a first year fellow at Temple, so just starting and pretty fresh out, but enjoying it so far. I haven't really had much call yet, so I'm really soaking these weekends in. I'm Anne-Sophie. I'm a second-year fellow. Just finished all my calls. That's awesome. My name is very French, and I come from Canada. Welcome, Anne-Sophie, and welcome, Annika. And by the way, congratulations for finishing all of your calls. How exciting is that? And I just love the city of brotherly and, shall I say, sisterly love. So guys, take us to your favorite spot in Philadelphia so we can get a sense of what you enjoy about the city. Yeah, I think it's the best city in the world. And I think a lot of what I love about Philadelphia is the food scene. And they have some amazing BYOs. And a favorite spot of mine for eating is Little Fish. It's an awesome little neighborhood in Philly. And you can bring your own wine. And it's just a great spot and one of my favorites to go. I love that. Dan, what do you think? I've got my glass of Cabernet and I'm sitting down at Little Fish. And I am just so excited to hear all about an interesting case. I honestly think that's perfect, especially with that nice beverage. I love Philly. I go, I go there as many times as I can. And I've run the half marathon there a few times. And the Temple Man, it's not quite on the path there, but I, you definitely passed Temple University on the run. And I just remember like the first time I did it, somebody dumped like a huge thing of beer on my head. So, uh, <laughs> like intentionally or? Yeah, like because you pass like, so a lot of frat houses. You, yeah, you pass a lot of frat houses. Uh, like, go, dude. Anyways, no, no. It, while that's a great memory, this would be another alternative uh, memory. So thanks for inviting us. <laughs> right, I'm hungry. I love it. I love it. So I hear you guys have an awesome case for us. Yes, really excited to share with you guys. So this is a 47-year-old female. She's a past medical history of GERD, iron deficiency anemia, uterine fibroids, and she's had two myomectomies, presenting with recurrent DVT and PE over six years. She has tried multiple anticoagulation regimens, including warfarin, DOAC, Lovenox. And after her sixth admission for acute PE at another major hospital in the city, her pulmonologist and PCP reached out to Dr. Radia for further evaluation in the Temple Pulmonary Hypertension Program. On further history, she's reporting symptoms of fatigue, dyspnea, as well as presyncope and syncope. From a functional standpoint, she can walk about three to four blocks on level ground without limitations. She reports that she can climb about one flight of steps before she feels pretty winded at the top of the step. She denies chest pressure or pain, no orthopnea, no PND. She's requiring two liters of supplemental oxygen with exertion as well as with sleep. So we'll go into some of her other past medical. So she had a history of uterine fibroids. 
PE and iron deficiency anemia. Her meds include anoxaparin and omeprazole. For family history, mainly just pertinent negatives here, so no history of DVT or PE in the family and no known hypercoagulable state or genetic disorders. For social history, she reports no drug use or significant alcohol use. And for her occupation, she's an internal medicine physician working in an outpatient primary care setting. Wow. I can't even imagine being a physician going through this whole disease process. I would be freaked out. I was having the same exact thoughts, like to be a physician and dealing with all these issues, you know, and I think about like the kinds of things that get me frazzled in my day and just take so many things for granted. I'm also just really struck by the frequency of her recurrent venous thromboembolic events. Initially, I was thinking, you know, is there an issue with a lack of understanding or poor health literacy with regards to proper adherence for the medications, like checking the INRs or how to inject Lovenox? And uh, clearly, that's probably not the issue. We have to start thinking about predispositions to forming clots in this patient uh, as we go forward. And also the thing to note here that's kind of interesting is this is over a period of six years, and that's how long it took for her to be referred to a pulmonary hypertension center. It's just showing the delay in diagnosis for these patients, which can be really significant. Imagine what it's like to not be medically literate and going through processes like this. It's crazy. Yeah, such a great point. So what happened next? Yeah, so we can go on to our objective data. She was in the clinic when we first saw her. Her vitals were, for the most part, normal. So blood pressure 128 over 89, a heart rate of 83. She was standing 90% on room air at rest, and her BMI was 37. So on exam, she was in no distress in the office. She's obese. Her JVP was about five centimeters of water, had a normal M-shaped venous contour, negative domino jugular reflux. And then for cardiac exam, most notable thing was an accentuated P2. On pulmonary exam, she had a right-sided faint pulmonary brewy. And then extremities were warm, full volume, good pulses in the upper and lower extremities bilaterally and no edema. And the thing we have highlighted here are really what we focus on in our targeted pulmonary hypertension physical exam, especially the right-sided faint pulmonary brewy not often heard, but very specific for CTEF. What does that sound like? It basically sounds like a very soft murmur. That's the best way to describe it, I think. Oh, wow. I got to tell you, I'm uh, kind of humbled by this exam. This is a really good exam. It really is a very good exam. And I guess just to take a pause for a second, you know, you've got this uh, middle-aged person with extensive history of venous thromboembolism who's coming in with shortness of breath, exertional intolerance, presyncope and syncope, and she's being referred to uh, pulmonary hypertension CTEF clinic. You know, Brian Garibaldi teaches about this hypothesis-driven physical exam. I imagine we don't listen for an accentuated P2 and don't necessarily look for all of these exam findings carefully for every single patient. So just going into the objective here, why are we already thinking about pulmonary hypertension and signs uh, to look for in the physical exam? I think the most important part, and our mentors really try to hammer that in, is how important the history is for these patients. For every referral that we get at Temple, our attendings are amazing at just getting the really complete picture before even meeting the patient. And they really perform the thorough history. And the fact that she came in with these recurrent PEs, number one, number two, exertional syncope on so many occasions. Absolutely right. So we have a history of somebody who's got recurrent PE and is coming in with shortness of breath and presyncope. And I think if you just think about mapping those two on together, you were already thinking about what are the implications of having had multiple PEs on your cardiopulmonary status. And we use the word CTEF, and I'm sure we'll talk more about that. And then you also think somebody who's got a history of iron deficiency, anemia, uterine fibroids, and is presenting with shortness of breath. And so we'll definitely look for anemia on her labs as well. And then on the other hand, you think, is there something else that could be causing both issues independently? And so you think about workhouse triad for having recurrent thromboembolism, and that's stasis, vascular injury, and hypercoagulability. And so could you have something that's causing a hypercoagulable state that would also make somebody be presyncopable, like a malignancy, you know, but I think the likelihood of that is probably low that she's had clots for six years. Uh, I think it'll be really interesting to see what workup we did to parse this out more, but the history and physical exam, just like you said, and sophie is really helpful in uh, narrowing our approach here. All right. So hit us up with some labs. So we have a BMP that is completely normal. So normal electrolytes, creatinine is 0.73, BUN of 11. BNP is 22. 
And on CBC, she has no leukocytosis, a mild anemia of 11.8 and platelets of 418. She's got a whole slew of labs to work up her recurrent PE. And this includes factor V Leiden, protein S, protein C activity, beta 2 lycoprotein antibodies, all of these which were negative in her. A repeat set of labs have also been negative. Her iron studies were low iron sat of 7, which goes along with her history of iron deficiency anemia. So I've got to say that she's not profoundly anemic, and so it's hard to ascribe shortness of breath and syncope to profound anemia. And then we're thinking about pulmonary hypertension and RV failure and CTEF as possible etiology. Her BNP is quite normal, you know? So there's a disconnect there for me, and that might just be a knowledge gap for myself, and I'd love to learn more about that. In the hypercoagulability workup, I think the most important things that would change our management are uh, finding of antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, and it sounds like she was negative for those labs as well. Yeah, I think with someone like this, you expect maybe something on these workups is going to turn up positive. But with her, I think the most jarring thing about all of this is the lack of positive data. Absolutely. And then the only other sort of red herring that one might consider is, hey, she's got iron deficiency anemia, and you can have iron deficiency from a number of causes, right? Like, is it poor intake, poor absorption, increased loss? One of the causes could be hemolysis. And a way to map on hemolysis and thromboembolism potentially could be proxismal nocturnal hemoglobinuria, because that also predisposes to venous and in some cases arterial clots. But I'm getting a sense that her iron deficiency anemia is more related to uterine fibroids rather than a hemolytic process. I commend you all that we're not anchoring on just a cardiovascular system, even though this is cardio nerds, you know. I've had a patient, and actually I, I looked at a series of patients while I was in residency of patients with B12 deficiency anemia, and they happen to have a proclivity towards blood clots. It's a story for another time and a case report that I've written up that I'm very proud about putting that connection between PE and pernicious anemia, actually. Anyways, I like the idea that we're investigating all of the things that we can investigate before we make an anchored diagnosis. For sure. And then I know we had mentioned the BNP surprisingly being low, and we do know that she was very well compensated. Her JVP is 5, negative AJR, and you know no signs of volume overload at this time. Right. She's coming in as an outpatient workup, not a right, compensated right. RV failure patient. Good point. Yeah, that is a really good point. Of course, BNP was validated in the ED setting for acute shortness of breath. So uh, definitely well taken. Yeah, for sure. So we'll go on to some more data. Moving on to her chest x-ray, you know, overall pretty unremarkable. However, if you look on the right border of the heart, you can kind of see that there might be enlargement of the right pulmonary artery. They're a little bit harder to see on the left, but definitely might be some enlargement on the right. Not something that we see often on chest x-ray. In terms of her ECG, she was a normal sinus rhythm. Not even that many signs of RV failure or RVH on her ECG. She actually did not meet criteria for that. And an otherwise normal sinus rhythm. I just want to say that that was such an exemplary read because even though there were not very many findings, you were thinking about your patient, their past medical history, their current presentation, their physical exam. And you didn't just say, oh, this is an unremarkable EKG. You said, these were the things that I was looking for that the patient didn't have. So I think that's just a reminder for myself to approach all the pieces of data with a sort of a hypothesis-driven way, because that's how you make the most out of it. So that was awesome. Thanks, Anne-Sophie. So just to recap, we have this patient who's coming in for recurrent DVT and PE. Her labs, for the most part, are unremarkable, apart from iron deficiency anemia, a clear chest x-ray, and an EKG with some nonspecific findings. But we do have something to point us in the direction of pulmonary hypertension, given our really strong physical exam that was done in the office, as well as the patient's history of exertional shortness of breath, as well as exertional presyncope and syncope. So with that in mind, the next step was to get an echo to assess for these signs of pH and RV function in this patient. So coming to the read of our echocardiogram, her LV was of normal size and function, but things got a lot more interesting when we came to the right side. So she had some interventricular systolic septal flattening. She had right ventricular outflow tract pulse wave Doppler with mid-systolic notch and shortened acceleration time consistent with an elevated pulmonary vascular resistance. And I think it's worth discussing this point here because the notch profile of the right ventricular outflow tract is quite specific for high pulmonary vascular resistance and high afterload. And the notch in that outflow tract is actually the reflected wave that happens in the RVOT when the right side is pumping against a high afterload. 
And so there's a reflected wave back before the pulmonic valve closes, which creates this notch shape. The reason that's so important is because it's specific for that high resistance rather than just pulmonary hypertension. So the absence of that notched pattern denotes pulmonary hypertension of venous origin, which is not the case in this patient. Wow, that is fascinating. I guess you could also have pulmonary hypertension from increased flows, which again would not be related to the resistance. For the intraventricular systolic septal flattening, an early learner is hearing a report of an echo that says RV pressure and volume overload, or sometimes the report will say RV volume overload, or sometimes they'll say just pressure overload. So what that is referring to is one of the findings here, you typically think of the left ventricle as the bodybuilder, you know, that's the person that's all jacked up, he or she is going to maintain her shape of the septum such that it would match that side. So we know that the left ventricle is normally like kind of a baguette, but when the RV is equally jacking up because there's a lot of pressure on the RV side, then that septal ends up getting bowed towards the left ventricle instead of typically being bent towards the right ventricle. When that occurs during systole, that is when the RV is clamping down and squeezing and ejecting the blood out of its side. And so that is indicative of a pressure overload, i.e. that RV, in order to get blood flow into the pulmonary circulation, has to really jack up its pressures. And by doing so, it forces the septum over into the LV side. So that's what we mean by RV pressure overload when the septal's flat or bowing into the LV during systole. Whereas if the septum is bowing into the LV because the RV is so overloaded with blood, that's when we say that there's RV overload, and that would be during diastole. So RV volume overload, when the septum bows over during diastole, when you're filling, and RV pressure overload, when the septum is bowing over during systole. And sometimes it's doing it in both cases. So that septum's kind of like dancing around flat the whole time, just jiggling. And when it does that, then you know that it's pressure and volume overload. So this is really clutch because as we've already indicated, the pro-BMP is not elevated. She's not coming in an acute decompensated heart failure. She's rather coming in as a consult, as an outpatient. So we're getting an idea that at this time, very consistent with what we're seeing, this patient is not volume overloaded, rather she is pressure overloaded, which is, again, consistent with the notch finding that you just talked about so beautifully. For sure. It's so cool that you can get an idea of what someone's pulmonary vascular resistance is without ever getting the right heart cath and getting so much valuable information from the echo itself. I just think it's it's fascinating. So going on to some more findings, she had evidence of mild tricuspid regurgitation, an RV to LV ratio of 1.3, which means she had some moderate RV enlargement. The RV should be smaller in size than the LV. And when you get to a size where they're actually equal, that's already meeting the criteria for moderate RV enlargement. So she had something a little bit even worse. The RV also was apex sharing with an open apical angle which also just speaks to the size of the RV, that it's very enlarged, as well as moderate RV dysfunction and signs of RVH. So all this to say is we know that she likely has an elevated pulmonary vascular resistance, and it's taken its toll on the right side and caused some dysfunction. It's notable here that we didn't find any disease on the left side, and we'll get into causes of pulmonary hypertension, but the most common cause of RV failure is LV failure. And by LV failure, we mean the left ventricle, we mean the left-sided valves, and left-sided diastolic dysfunction, systolic dysfunction. And so the fact that we don't see that, that's a really important pertinent negative and will direct how we proceed in terms of our evaluation. So moving on, and I just want to reiterate this point that we still have not done any invasive study on this patient, and we already have a pretty good idea of how our RV is doing just by the studies we've done so far. So all our referrals for pulmonary hypertension, they all get a VQ scan. That's just a very important part of the workup because CTEF, as we'll discuss in a little bit, can be cured, and we must know if that is on the table. So the next study that our patient got was a VQ scan, which indeed showed multiple bilateral perfusion defects, right greater than left. So suggesting that potentially her right pulmonary vascular circulation was more affected than the left and her ventilation scan was normal. I love that a VQ scan is part of the protocol for evaluating pulmonary hypertension. And a VQ scan has a sensitivity above 95% for evaluating for CTEF. When you think about positive and negative predictive values, 
they depend not only on test characteristics like sensitivity and specificity, it also depends on the base rate. And because the base rate of CTEF is relatively low, with a sensitivity of above 95%, VQ scan's negative predictive value approaches 100%. So if you have a negative VQ scan, you've essentially ruled out CTEF. Conversely, there's no free meal, as one says, right? And so if you have a test that's very sensitive, you probably will lack specificity. And so we see perfusion defects. Think about other causes of perfusion defects, right? And so other things on this list that we'll still have to look out for is going to be pulmonary veno-occlusive disease. You can have uh, PA sarcoma, which was actually a case that was proposed by another program. Rare, but it happens. As well as mediastinal fibrosis that may cause extrinsic compression. And so at this point, we have a patient who's got pulmonary hypertension who likely doesn't have left-sided heart disease, but with a VQ scan that has not ruled out CTEF, but we'll probably have to do a little bit more workup to confirm that it's that and not something else. Just to correct you there, Amit, it's, there's no free lunch, not no free meal. I, and I may be wrong. Now that, now I'm doubting myself. Oh, that's a, is that, is that free meal or free lunch? Well, I mean, we're, I think, we're, well, are we having I mean, dinner, by the way, at the, this fish place or are we having lunch? I think we're having dinner, right? I've got Cabernet. I feel bad about having Cabernet at lunch. Yeah, we're sunsetting a dinner and the great Cabernet. But I do think it's no free lunch, right, Anika? I think free lunch. Yeah, oh. it's no free lunch. Yeah, All sorry. Right. All right, fine. <laughs> fine. I do correct myself. There is no free lunch when you're talking about sensitivities and specificities. Thank you. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> So the next study that we look for when CTEF is in our minds is obviously a CT angiogram. A lot of people think that, oh, CT angiogram, that's enough, but the VQ scan still remains extremely important in the workups. So her CTA did show an enlarged right main pulmonary artery as expected and how, as we already kind of saw in the chest x-ray even, and then did show also a large proximal chronic mural thrombus with minimal vessel count throughout the right side. She also had on the left side, segmental lining thrombus. And the word that's important here is lining thrombus and the chronic nature of the clot um, and what it looks like on CT. So often we're used to seeing a lot of acute pulmonary embolism that are often very central in the pulmonary arteries. But with CTEF, it's often just lining the vessel. So it looks quite different on CTA, but it's very important to pay attention to that. Yeah, when I was growing up, one of my favorite things to do, and I'm not sure why my parents took me to do this activity so often, but it was making wax candles. And I remember like you dip your finger into the hot wax. Again, don't don't extrapolate this about my personality. But as you dip your finger into the hot wax, you basically get a coating of wax on your finger. And as it comes in and out, you keep getting that coating. And that's the way I think of this with the skin in somebody with chronic thromboembolism. It's like more of a coating of the blood vessels rather than a gnarly embolus that kind of obstructs the lumen of the vessel from the get-go and more proximally often. That's exactly right. And it's just a good reminder that I think often we think of our CTAs for our acute PEs, but there's a ton of value in diagnosing a clot of chronic nature as well. Two years ago, when I was a resident at Hopkins, we had a patient who had just wild pulmonary hypertension with RVSP that was above 100 with RV failure. And his CT angio actually showed a mosaic pattern. And I thought, oh, this patient probably has small airways disease. And that's probably led to sort of a lung disease mediated pulmonary hypertension. But actually, we did get the VQ scan. And it was very clear that this patient has a CTAF. His conventional PA angiogram showed it as well. And the mosaic pattern on the CT angio was a mosaic perfusion pattern, not a mosaic sort of small airways disease pattern. And so definitely another feature to look for as well. So just to break here to talk about the things that we know so far in this patient. So at this point, she does carry a diagnosis of CTEF, and that is because she has evidence of chronic clot on CTA, as well as a largely abnormal VQ scan with large perfusion defects. The second part of the CTEF diagnosis is having pulmonary hypertension, which she does have evidence of this on her echocardiogram with elevated PVR, as well as RV dysfunction and RV enlargement that we saw. I'll just say that CTEF is so aptly named. You said the two diagnostic criteria is evidence of chronic clots and evidence of pulmonary hypertension. And the name is chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension. It's awesome, right? Yeah, and it works out more things like that. <laughs> yeah. More things like that. Yeah, very intuitive. So just a few points about CTEF that I think are really important. CTEF is WHO class 
for pulmonary hypertension. About 4 to 5% of all patients who have an acute PE will go on to develop CTEF with progressive increases in pulmonary vascular resistance and pulmonary hypertension eventually leading to complete RV failure and death. Known risk factors for CTEF briefly are thrombophilic disorders, ventriculoatrial shunts, infected pacemaker wires, we've seen a few cases of that at our institution, absence of a spleen, history of malignancy, chronic inflammatory disorders, and myeloproliferative disorders. We're talking in the U.S. about 10,000 to 15,000 cases that are diagnosed annually. One important point too is I said that about 4 to 5% of all patients with acute PEs will go on to develop CTEF, but actually there's also a small number of patients with CTEF who have no prior history of PE or DVT. So that adds to our estimated number. And like we've already alluded to, it's an underdiagnosed disease. There's often a true significant delay before these patients are referred to an expert center. This is really the only form of pulmonary hypertension that can be cured surgically in the right patient. If the diagnosis is delayed, they're all at risk of life-threatening decompensation, when in fact they could be completely cured from their pulmonary hypertension and have a major improvement in their quality of life. So we've talked about the echo, the VQ scan, the CTA, and now we're going to go into a little bit more invasive studies to kind of confirm and put everything together. Yeah, and I think we have a diagnosis, but there's some crucial things that we just don't know yet in this patient, and that's her actual risk factors for developing these multiple PEs and underlying etiology. Oftentimes when we give kind of serious diagnosis to a patient, one of the first things they want to know is, is why, and why did this happen to me? What caused this? And I think so often in medicine, unfortunately, we don't have the answer for that question. And we've done our due diligence and everything's come back negative, or we just don't know. And so far that has been the case for this patient for this whole time she's been going through this process, but we actually haven't completed the workup for her and we haven't done everything we can do for her. And that's when you start to think a little bit outside of the box when it comes to causes of CTEF. Anika, I love what you just said. We haven't done everything that we could do for her. And I think that for a lot of people, one might say, hey, look, she came with shortness of breath and pre-syncope and syncope. We diagnose CTEF. It's a rare diagnosis. We're going to pat ourselves on the back and get her to treatment. You know, and in the background, people have already looked into her hypercoagulable state. So let's uh, trust that they've looked into everything. And so I think having the presence of mind to take a pause and say, look, have we actually looked into everything? You know, is there any other steps that we should take? And rather than just making a diagnosis and getting her treated, like what is the underlying predisposition? And so I, I love that we're thinking about this and going the extra mile and not just saying, okay, she had a hypercoagulable workup at outside hospital and we're going to move on. That's great. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So with the hypercoagulable workup, we made sure she had her proper malignancy screening, ruled out a lot of autoimmune etiologies, and still were coming up negative for her. So when thinking of other etiologies, something very interesting to think about is an actual mechanical issue at the level of the veins. Is there something that's actually externally compressing the vein and leading to stasis and the development of clots? And these could be a number of things, any type of anatomic variant in which there is an anomaly or compression of the vein, one being uh, Maytherner syndrome, in which the left iliac vein compresses the right iliac artery and causes stasis. There could be bulky lymphadenopathy causing venous compression, uterine fibroids. Any kind of anomaly can cause compression and lead to clotting. That is such a great point because, you know, when I think about predisposition to clotting, I typically think about a systemic hypercoagulable workup. And yes, of course, stasis is one of the three of Burkhaus triad, but I usually haven't reached to doing a thorough sort of anatomic evaluation around the veins themselves. Like, how did you approach the next steps in the evaluation? It's a brilliant, I think, a really nice approach. The way that we approach this, I mean, we're one of the biggest centers in the country. So we've done some observations over the last few years. We noticed that a lot of patients had either a diagnosis of Maturner syndrome and a lot of our women actually had large uterine fibroids that were found as a result of having anemia in the past or were seen on abdominal ultrasound. And we just started looking to see if this may be related to CTEF. And we actually published a case series 
about two years ago, looking at seven women in our cohort that had large uterine fibroids leading to sleep death. And the mechanism is exactly what we've been describing. It's basically compression of the pelvic vein causing stasis and then causing chronic clot and several DVTs. We were able to prove this, and we'll show it in this patient, is with using venograms in these patients and looking directly at potential compression of their veins. The other possible mechanism that's associated with this is polycythemia and reactive thrombocytosis secondary to menorrhagia. So that's also part of this etiology that we have now newly found for CTEF. Actually, looking at our whole population, we found that 18% of our women had large uterine fibroids. And of course, all of these women had a negative hypercoagulable workup and had no further clots after they were treated for their fibroids. That My mind is blown. Uh, my, this is mic drop for me. <laughs> I, mean, not, I mean, it's your mic drop, not mine. <laughs> wow, you can great. take the mic drop. It's... This is actually very nostalgic for me because I'm remembering a patient I took care of as a resident uh, who had presented with uh, multiple PEs in the past and was uh, actually admitted for uh, left leg swelling and edema, and she had a large clot. And so she actually had had a diagnosis of Maitherner syndrome. And I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about the anatomy there, uh, where it's iliac vein compression. But it was really also related and accentuated by her profession slash hobby. She was an Olympic athlete, uh, wheelchair racer. And if you ever see those like wheelchair racers, they spend a majority of their time like completely bent over their wheelchair while they're racing. And so not only do you have this anatomic predisposition to left common iliac vein compression because of the course it takes with respect to the artery, she also spent her time essentially like folded over on herself, flex at the hip, worsening that compression. And so she'd had like iliac vein stents in the past and whatnot, but it was so interesting because it was totally related also to her being an Olympic athlete wheelchair racer. Yeah. And I, I think the Anne-Sophie's paper and discussion about the fibroids is just so important because you know, how many times would you imagine a cardiologist taking the history about someone's menstrual period, right? A woman who is coming in with some of these symptoms and just highlighting the importance of women's health and how much it can be ignored or just dismissed. Yeah. And this is such a valuable reminder of linking two things together. You know, obviously you have the disease process that we're fixated on and focused on, but not forgetting about the cause. One might've been like, one, not a cardio nerd, but one might've been like, oh, this is CTEF. Okay. D- diagnosis made and then move on, you know, either, even treat the CTEF, but to investigate and interrogate and look for the uh, underlying uh, pathophysiology of the stasis, you know, you've really found the culprit and this is really neat and uh, really honestly opened my mind up. So I'm very appreciative. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So what's next? So we hinted at some of these tests that we're going to get next, but I'll go through all of them. So of course, she's gotten herself a right heart cath to assess invasive hemodynamics, a pulmonary angiogram, which I'll get into, an iliac venogram, and evaluating the uterine fibroids further. So with her right heart cath, she had a right atrial filling pressure of nine, a pulmonary artery pressure of 53 over 30 with a mean of 41, a wedge of 12, a cardiac output of 5.58, an index of 2.69, a PVR of 5.19, and SVR of 1,088. So some elevated right-sided filling pressures, elevated mean pulmonary pressure, a normal wedge, and a markedly elevated PVR with preserved output index here. And I think what's really important to note here is the normal wedge, right? That's always something that we have to kind of hammer home on these pulmonary hypertension patients, especially when we were talking about the most common cause of right-sided failure being left-sided failure. Well, here she's showing normal left-sided feeling pressures. Yeah, this is actually consistent with what you brought to our attention on that echo when we talked about the RVOT pulse wave Doppler with the mid systolic notch and the shortened acceleration time that you had said was consistent with PVR, pulmonary vascular resistance, specifically from the arterial side and not a venous congestion side. Really, the the cath findings are consistent with the non-invasive echo evaluation that we did way back at the beginning of the case. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It just it matched up with everything we saw. So coming to our next advanced diagnostic test, uh, the pulmonary angiogram. Her angiogram revealed significant, severe proximal and mid-vessel disease in the right segmental arteries. She also had severe distal disease in the left subsegmental arteries as well. So the reason that we get 
the pulmonary angiogram in these patients has a lot to do with the surgical planning for these patients, which Anne-Sophia will talk a little bit about. So the most important point here is that our patient had severe proximal and mid-vessel disease, and that's really the thing to focus on when we're determining surgical candidacy for pulmonary thromboendarterectomy surgery, which is really the cure for these patients. PTEC can be further categorized in four surgical levels. So level one basically means that the obstructive material involves the main pulmonary arteries, and level four disease means that disease starts at the subsegmental level, so much more distal. Level two usually starts at the lobar branches, and level three means that the disease is in the segmental branches. So in most cases, patients with level four disease, not so good surgical candidates. The disease is just too distal for surgery. We have other strategies to treat these patients. We do things like pulmonary balloon angioplasty. We can treat them with some pulmonary hypertension medications, but pulmonary thromboendarterectomy may not be a good option for these patients, as opposed to level one, which then we can go ahead and take the clot material out. Great. So at this point, we've done some tests to figure out her surgical plans, as well as assess the severity of her disease with her right heart cath. And our next test is actually the lower extremity venogram, which is part of our workup for those local mechanical issues that we had discussed earlier. For all you visual learners, all of these images will be uploaded onto the website for you guys to look at as we're talking about this. For her venogram, she interestingly had for her left iliac vein, she had over 80% stenosis as a result of compression from an overlying right common iliac artery. And this is classic and consistent with a diagnosis of Bay-Therner syndrome, in which there's an anatomic anomaly causing this extrinsic compression of the vein. And then, even more interestingly, she had significant proximal stenosis on the right iliac vein. So we've already mentioned the association that we've observed at our center between large fibroids and CTEF. So although we have an explanation on the left as to why there is compression and stasis, on the right, this is where the large uterine fibroids become very important in our workup and our treatment plan. For sure. And I think it's a good time to discuss our next big point here, and that's the importance of screening CTEF patients with venography. Something I've done a little bit of research in and a process of publishing is the important association that we found between May-Therner syndrome and CTEF. At Temple, anybody with CTEF now gets a venogram because when they were initially starting to do these for certain select patients, they were finding a large cohort of these people had anatomic variants or some kind of mechanical compression. And a lot of patients had Mayferner syndrome. And a lot of them don't have these symptoms. And it's very underreported in the literature, just from what we've seen here at Temple. Anika, I'm loving this conversation because it really shows an institutional expertise in this process because you're taking care of patients as a referral center for complicated pulmonary hypertension. It's feeding your research and looking for etiologies and doing a more thorough evaluation. And that's sort of feeding back into how you approach patients with an incredible level of diligence. A question I have just because I don't know the data in this area very well, but if you were to do a venogram for patients who didn't have CTEF, do you have a sense of how many of them would just have evidence of indolent or clinically insignificant Mayferner or angiographic compression of the left common iliac vein? That's a really good question. And I don't know the answer to that. I don't know if Anne-Sophie may have any I don't ideas. Know. I don't know the answer to that, but that's a very good question. Our preliminary data has shown close to 25 to 30% of people who get a venogram for CTEF end up having Mayferner syndrome. Yeah, I'm just making a parallel to like patients that have cryptogenic stroke and a PFO and, you know, people who are just like normal, healthy and walking around, a certain proportion will have a PFO, but there are features of a more etiologic PFO, right? If a larger shunt with the aneurysmal septum, it's like features that are more likely to actually right, right. have it be etiologic. And I'm wondering if, you know, there may be a range of angiographic compression and there are certain features that make it more likely that this is actually the cause as opposed to sort of an incidental finding. But yeah, really right, right. interesting area. Thanks for... Uh, teaching us on it. Definitely. So next step for our patient, given the findings on her pulmonary angiogram, she was scheduled for a pulmonary thromboendarterectomy, 
which is the curative surgery for patients with CTEF. So I really urge you to go take a look at the clot pictures that are posted on the blog because it's quite impressive. You can basically reconstruct the pulmonary vascular tree with the material that comes out, which we're going to talk about in a second, that comes out during the endarterectomy. So just to give you an idea of her hemodynamics immediately after the OR. So her RA pressure, we said earlier, was 9, went to 3. Her pulmonary artery pressures were initially, the mean was 41, the mean was then 17. Right after the OR, cardiac output increased from 5.6 to 6, cardiac index increased from 2.69 to 2.9, and her PVR, which was 5.2, was actually less than 1 after her surgery. Wow. Her pulmonary hypertension was cured. She did not need pH medical therapy, and she did not need any oxygen when she left the hospital. Oh, cheesy. (laughs) That is uh, actually, I'm looking at the images right now and our audience will be able to as well, but this is so amazing. I just want to take a moment to recognize that Anika and Anne-Sophie, you just said, oh, you know, this patient has CTEF. We figured out why they had CTEF and we sent them for a thromboendotorectomy. You said it as if like, this is just a very natural sequence of events. And I just want to recognize that this is a highly complex thought process, diagnostic evaluation, and really complex surgical procedure that a lot of centers don't offer. It's a testament to why the patient was referred to Dr. Vadia's clinic. So this is really awesome. Great for the patient. And then speaking of actually what you just mentioned, I just wanted to, just because we just mentioned the technical aspect of um, the surgery, and it is a very challenging surgery to perform. I was just going to go into a few details about the surgery itself. The first point to make is that this is very different than an embolectomy, which a lot of trainees and attendings are familiar with for an acute PE. It's definitely not the same as an endarterectomy. So when the surgeons are in, they're not going to see embolic material necessarily. They're really just going to see a pearly white, smooth, silky appearance of the surgical plane. And this should come out kind of as one unit. You should not have much resistance when this all comes out at once. And you'll see what I'm talking about when you look at the picture. And like the wax, like the wax on my finger. That's right. and so basically, it requires a complete dissection of the entire pulmonary vascular tree, and the patient has to be under hypothermic circulatory arrest. And then there's multiple periods of circulatory arrest during the surgery, all about 20 minutes in length, and the patient is cooled to 20 degrees Celsius during the procedure. It's perfect for the Canadian here. <laughs> 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 I, I just have to mention, so I read a little bit about CTEF after I saw this case. And hot off the press in the current issue of Jack is this new modality for patients with CTEF who've had a pulmonary thromboendarterectomy and continue to have residual pulmonary hypertension. It's pulmonary artery denervation. So I thought it was really cool because it's just so amazing the pace of innovation and discovery within cardiology. And essentially what they did was compared uh, pulmonary artery denervation to a sham procedure in these patients. And there was actually a meaningful reduction in PA pressures and PVR. Uh, And I'd have to go back to the article to look at all the details, but a really interesting sort of hypothesis generating alternative and or complementary modality in these patients, in addition to the balloon angioplasty or the real SIGWAT medical therapy. That's just a nice thing to sort of start adding to our tool set. Yeah, for sure. That sounds awesome. I'll have to read up on that. So going on for our patient, so we just talked about this major surgery she had, and it's a long road to recovery, and she went home and then followed up in clinic. And on our first visit back in the office, she was actually found to be a new typical atrial flutter. And so she was immediately referred to one of our EP doctors, Dr. Gangaretti, for an ablation to convert her back into normal sinus rhythm. The reason why this is so important and why our EP docs are so aggressive with putting these patients back into sinus rhythm brings the concept of the importance of atrial kick in these patients with RV dysfunction. There's actually a very interesting paper that was written by one of our pH attendings, Dr. Paul Forfia, 
And the paper was titled Assessment of the Physiologic Contribution of Right Atrial Function to Total Right Heart Function in Patients with and Without Pulmonary Hypertension. And what they found, basically, they looked at patients who had PAH and at patients who had no cardiovascular disease. And then they assessed, obviously, the total right heart function, which includes right atrial function and right ventricle function. And they found that for the patients with PAH, more than half of total right heart function occurred during atrial systole compared to less than one third in the normal cohort. So RA function really accounts for a greater proportion of total right heart function in patients with pH than in normal subjects. And that just speaks to the importance of AV synchrony and the importance of maintaining sinus rhythm at all times in these patients. They just need their atrial kick to do well. We've seen this both, Anika and I, on multiple occasions, when we get a sick patient who has pulmonary hypertension, God forbid they go into a fib or a flutter or a tack, they decompensate immediately and they just need sinus rhythm emergently. Guys, I'm loving all this love for the right side. You know, the right ventricle, the right atrium, the tricuspid valve, they just, <laughs> they just like never get any love, but, but they, yeah. definitely is not the case at Temple. This is great. We're remembering yeah. the forgotten ventricle. Oh yeah. Everybody's equal when you're training at Temple. i love that maybe a little more important i don't know every chamber yeah so some more follow-up for our patient so as we've talked about we cured her ph but we still have not uh, addressed that underlying issue that was so important that we've been really harping on throughout the case for her mayferner syndrome there was very important collaboration with our interventional cardiology department so after she was more stable and recovering from surgery she had her left iliac vein stented by one of our interventionalists, Dr. Bashir, who works very closely with our PH team here. He does some really, really amazing things. So if you go to the, the blog, there's actually a really cool visual of the before and after the stent. And you'll just see before there's really no blood flow and really severe stenosis of that vein that's completely opened up with the stent. I'm actually blown away by the venogram because at first I thought this was like a different phase you know, like the second later. But holy cow, if I compare them as a before and after, there's like nothing getting into the IVC before. And now there's actually like blood flowing. So this is a massive difference in flow. Right. It's amazing. Yeah. So following up further for her clinical course, she was seen again in clinic um, with a follow-up echo post-op and her RV function completely normalized, which is amazing. Uh You can see her BNP is 311 before her surgery and was 66 post-op. She will be on lifelong anticoagulation after her surgery. She maintains functional class NYHA class one, and she went on to enroll in an exercise program and lost almost 30 pounds, which is just amazing. That is just incredible. And like amazing for her and her family and her patients, because now she can actually like take care of them and and not have to worry about feeling short of breath and syncopize. This is just like so many levels. Yeah. And just when you thought we were done, there was one more thing for her. So as you can recall, she did have that stenosis on the right side as well, not just the left side. And that was a result of these very, very large fibroids. We knew she had a history of this, but she actually had some imaging that showed that they were very large and compressing her veins. So she did have a hysterectomy to just really rid her of all her underlying issues that could have been causing her development of clotting. This is a good time to just bring up the crucial importance of the multidisciplinary team in our PH program. Right now, we've had the involvement of heart failure docs. We've had EP. We've had interventional cardiology, surgery, and now OBGYN, who is also getting involved. And we now have a very close relationship with them. So if possible, we try to have the hysterectomy done on the same admission as their PTE. Bringing all these people together is how we can make the right patient selection for surgery, and it's how we can follow them up afterwards and make sure that they are recovering very well. Wow, guys, this is like just such an incredible overall clinical picture, right? I mean, the patient came with a complex issue. You not only diagnosed the primary problem and treated it very effectively with advanced surgical modality you really left no stone unturned by really evaluating the underlying predispositions were to her clotting and manage them one at a time. It's a really awesome, awesome work. And it's just giving me a glimpse of the kind of work you guys do over there at Temple. 
Yeah, thanks. We were so excited to talk about this case today. We thought it really tied in so many different interesting diagnoses. And the best part is that the patient got completely better. Absolutely. On that note, we'd love to talk a little bit about the program, the training, and in essence, what makes your heart flutter about training at <laughs> Temple? Yeah, I can start off and Sophie can take over a little. She's had a little more time in the cardiology program, but I, I did do, we actually both did a residency at Temple and I actually did a chief year at Temple as well. As a institution in general, it's just an awesome place and it has the kind of energy that sucks you in and keeps you in for a long time. That's why you'll see people that train here and go on to spend their entire careers here. A large part had to do with the community we serve of North Philadelphia. And it's this like unique combination of treating this kind of community and putting them in touch with amazing resources that we have here at Temple. And we see really, really interesting pathology and it's just never a boring day at Temple. Yeah, I also did my residency at Temple and I wanted to stay in Philly and there was no question that I wanted to stay at Temple for a cardiology fellowship. When I first chose Temple, I, I wanted to work in an environment where there was a lot of emphasis on social determinants of health. And that's something that we focus on at Temple on a daily basis. And I found that very appealing. And also I want to bring to light the mentorship in the cardiology program is truly amazing. The attendings, the staff will support you in whatever passion you may have. I mean, we spend a lot of time discussing pulmonary hypertension, which is certainly very unique to our program. But whatever your interest is, there is a mentor that's right there to help you with your personal life, professional life, or whatever it is that you may want to do with your future. And I came into Cardiology Fellowship knowing that I wanted to start a family, and I had no doubt of the support that I was going to get. And it's been truly amazing. I'm actually eight months pregnant Congratulations. Thank you. All I've had is just amazing support. Even during the pandemic, they basically just adapted my schedule so that I could do all remote consults for like four months or something. And then everybody was on board. It was just pure support and love during this entire pregnancy. They even threw me a baby shower. Oh, yeah. The virtual baby shower was actually very soon into the start of the year. And it was like every faculty member showed up. Oh my God. Every fellow was there and you just like feeling the love and it's, it's awesome. And everyone seems to be just there for each other and, and, and really, really awesome. You guys, that's one around. lucky baby. <laughs> yeah. yeah, for sure. <laughs> well, Anne Sophie and Annika, thank you so much for enriching our evenings. I feel like I understand CTEF so much better uh, than before. And you've added pearls that my mind normally wouldn't have gone to in terms of thinking about extrinsic compression, doing a lower extremity venogram, thinking about fibroids and things like this. So really awesome, awesome learning. Thanks again. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, I totally agree with Tom. It really, again, broadened our appreciation and understanding of thinking of the body as a whole. And again, this physician who you took care of, I'm sure is just so incredibly grateful, especially as you did something really good for her and curative from what you're telling us. And also, the, just the way you paint your program is just so beautiful. The whole cohesion is really magical, and it's such an honor for us to hear about it. And Ahmed, you're going to have to drive me home because I had too many Cabernets. Uh, <laughs> Uh, let's call an Uber. Okay. <laughs> All right. All right. Thanks so Guys, much for having us. Thank really you. And now you will hear from our exceptional mentor, associate program director, and co-director of our right heart failure, pulmonary hypertension, and CTEF program, Dr. Anjali Vedia, who will tell you guys a bit more about our amazing fellowship program and why we love Temple. My name is Anjali Vaidya, and I thank you so much for including our cardiology program at Temple University here in Philadelphia. Amit and Dan, I know I said this to you previously, but I really am so impressed by your entire team and all of the incredible work you are doing for these great discussions, education, and promotion. Anika and Anne Sophie did an absolutely phenomenal job in discussing this case. I serve as co-director of the Pulmonary Hypertension, Right Heart Failure, and CTEF program at Temple University Hospital. This case is representative of the typical cases referred from all over the United States that we care for in our PH Right Heart Failure program. We are unique in that our PH Right Heart Failure program is entirely based within the cardiology division. 
with an independent inpatient right heart failure service that is a teaching service for our internal medicine residents, cardiology, and heart failure fellows. Our program has four faculty. Three of us are advanced heart failure and cardiac transplant cardiologists, and we have a mix of outpatient clinics, right heart cath, including rest and exercise with invasive cardiopulmonary exercise testing, and our busy inpatient service. The case of my patient presented here very nicely represented the kinds of patients we regularly care for and the necessary team approach to evaluate, diagnose, and manage CTEF. We do so with a weekly multidisciplinary conference, including our four core PH right heart failure faculty, interventional cardiology, cardiac surgery, chest radiology, and our amazing and supportive nursing and administrative team. Over the past week, we have performed three PTEs with a fourth in the OR right now, along with other patients who have undergone balloon pulmonary angioplasty as part of their CTEF management. Anika and Anne-Sophie very nicely highlighted many of the key principles we apply in evaluating these patients, and it brought me such joy to hear all four of you together in this sophisticated educational discussion. I don't have much more to add, but I will highlight just a few points. One of the first is the careful non-invasive evaluation of all patients with suspected pulmonary hypertension. Our group has published many tools over the years to use echo-doppler assessments to predict the underlying hemodynamic profiles in patients with pH, using direct review of imaging, and most recently in the COVID-19 pandemic, using review of routinely reported parameters. This patient's features of right ventricular enlargement and dysfunction when accompanied by a notched RV outflow tract pulse wave Doppler profile with a shortened acceleration time, interventricular systolic septal flattening, normal left atrial size, and low normal transmitral and tissue Doppler E to E prime were very predictive of a hemodynamic profile for significant pulmonary hypertension on the basis of an elevated PBR. When combined with her symptoms and history of recurrent venous thromboembolism, this appropriately prompted further evaluation for CTEF. The diagnosis of chronic thromboembolic disease versus acute recurrent PE can often be challenging, and in addition to a careful symptom history, takes into account other findings on non-invasive imaging. The presence of right ventricular hypertrophy implies chronicity, and the presence of lining thrombus, webs, and distal vessel caliber attenuation on her CTA are also consistent with chronic disease. Operability assessment is even more complex, dependent on the medical PH right heart failure team, and full discussion is beyond the scope of what we have time for today. That said, similar to transplant, Outcomes have been shown to correlate directly with center experience and volume. When considered in a high-volume program, age and comorbidities are important and a very nuanced assessment, along with thrombus accessibility with surgical and anesthesiology expertise and post-op ICU management directed by our core cardiology PH right heart failure faculty. We have had positive results in our program since its inception in 2013 and are now the second biggest program in the United States. In 2019, we performed 72 PTEs, and to date we have performed over 100 balloon pulmonary angioplasties. With input and effort from our incredible cardiology fellows over the years, we have published on dramatic improvements in NYHA functional class, 6-minute walk distance, and BNP, in addition to hemodynamic improvements in right atrial pressure, mean pulmonary pressure, pulmonary vascular resistance, cardiac index, pulmonary compliance, and echo-doppler improvements in RV size, function, and parameters of PVR. It really is a humbling experience for our cardiology division to have the privilege to care for such sick and complex patients who travel from all over the United States to us for their care. The recognition of compressive uterine fibroids as a risk and association with CTEF was something first published on by us a couple years ago with Anne-Sophie as our lead fellow investigator. 
Anika and other temple trainees have been hard at work in studying the role of May Therner within our CTEF population. The exact incidence in the general population is not well known, though estimated from autopsy and other studies to be between 20 to 25 percent. Our temple fellows and residents have contributed greatly in pulmonary hypertension, right heart failure, and CTEF literature, also spanning topics such as echocardiography in pH, tumor emboli, bariatric surgery in pH, pulmonary venoocclusive disease, postoperative atrial arrhythmias in collaboration with our incredible EP section, intraoperative anesthesia, hematologic considerations, and more. Speaking of which, I am so very honored to serve as the Associate Program Director of the Temple Cardiology Fellowship, along with my amazing colleague, Dr. Praveen Patil, a tireless advocate and supporter of our fellows as the Program Director. We have five cardiology fellows per year, representing a range of diversity and including those in the traditional ABIM fellowship pathway, as well as the ABIM research physician-scientist pathway. I've been at Temple for four years now, after having served as an associate residency director across town, and I have been blown away by the entire faculty's commitment to the fellows, as trainees, researchers, and as colleagues, the quality of education, and the constantly positive and collaborative spirit between fellows. One recent example of this was just one year ago, in an unprecedented GME moment, when Hahnemann Hospital, the major teaching hospital for Drexel, closed its doors, leaving hundreds of ACGME trainees without a program. Our program had the great fortune to recruit and expand to help our neighbors and colleagues down the street, and our fellows and faculty welcomed three general and one interventional fellows into our program without skipping a beat. Our cardiology fellows are each other's biggest fans and supporters, genuinely forming a family amongst themselves during their training with bonds that will last a lifetime. We have five fellows expanding their families with babies this summer and fall, and the outpouring of love and support from each other and the faculty are just another small reminder of the supportive and personal spirit here at Temple. The case we discussed today represents our PH and right heart failure program, but this is only one of many sections within cardiology that all work together in concert to provide innovative care, education, and research. Our interventional cardiology group is paving the way with advanced structural care, such as MitraClip, valve and valve procedures, and TAVR, in concert with our incredible imaging cardiologists with advanced TEE, cardiac MRI, and cardiac CT. There is an immense amount of peripheral venous and arterial work in our cath lab, in addition to balloon pulmonary angioplasty, and collaboration with electrophysiology for Watchman devices. Our EP section has exceptional expertise, ranging from endocardial to epicardial VT ablations, device extractions, and the countless additional procedures which our junior cardiology fellows have the unique opportunity to scrub into during their EP rotations. Our left heart failure section leads the region with transplant outcomes, offering a range of mechanical support options, dual organ transplantation, cardiomems monitoring, and specific interest and expertise within cardiac amyloidosis, cardio-oncology, and HEFPEF. Together with our faculty, our chief fellows have organized a robust conference schedule with one to two conferences each day spanning cath, EP, right and left heart failure, echo, prevention, valves, M&M, grand rounds, and journal clubs. We also offer advanced subspecialty fellowships in electrophysiology, interventional cardiology, and advanced heart failure. Thank you again for having us join the CardioNerds podcast series. We have really enjoyed this entire experience. On behalf of our chief, Dr. Dan Edmundowitz, program director, Dr. Praveen Patil, and all of our cardiology faculty, we are delighted to meet you all throughout this year's fellowship search process and beyond. Wow, what an amazing case. A huge thanks to the fellows and faculty for enriching us with yet another terrific discussion and incredible addition to the Cardiners Case Report series. 
Be sure to check out the show notes for all the case media available for review, key take-home and discussion points, and links to the program. If you'd like the educational takeaways and graphics delivered directly to your email, sign up for The Heartbeat, the CardioNerds newsletter. You can join the email list using a link in the episode description as well as from our website, www.cardionerds.com. We thank the ACC Fit section chaired by Dr. Noshin Riza for their support and collaboration. And a very special thanks to our incredible production team for elevating our platform. Colin Blumenthal, Tommy Doss, Eunice Dugan, Rick Ferraro, Evelyn Song, and Bibin Burgis are all internal medicine residents at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, as well as their phenomenal med-ed mentor and University of Maryland cardiology fellow, Karan Desai. If you love the show as much as we do, be sure to spread the word, rate, and review us on your favorite podcast platform, and consider becoming a patron of the show on Patreon. All right, that's a wrap. Time to make like an S2 and split. The technical aspects of the surgery, I was just going to go into it a little bit because I think it's really interesting and kind of impressive what our surgeons are able to do in the OR when doing this. The first And there was um it's like a clinking in the background when you were sorry, saying that was my dog. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Is that like a collar that the dog has? No, he's, or something? he's a little plug and he is like sharp start. <laughs> oh, this totally stays in. This totally stays in. Oh. Yeah, this is, yeah. <laughs> all right. Well we're all dog lovers. Look at that in. <laughs> that is 